Good morning. How are you doing? Huh? Well, no, I'll answer that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 Today is communion service, as is our tradition, about a 10-minute break um, after the worship service, and we'll gather right back here for the Lord's table. No evening service this evening. Still a need for special music. If you can see Jared on that, prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. You can see Andrea's phone number there regarding the prayer chain. Days of praise are here for the next quarter, so make use of those. Coming October the 4th, Forgotten Man Ministries Banquet. Flyer and sign-up sheet posted on the helps board. That's right outside of this door. Um, RSVP by September the 24th. If you've noticed many household items about the church and basement, that's from Ed and Suzanne's home. Uh, they uh, have brought that stuff in. So feel free to take what you want. And anything that's not gone by today, I guess will be donated or something. Yeah. It's gonna go to gonna go to Goodwill. So, uh, take a, a look, a last look at that today. Anything you want, you feel free to take it. They're not here. I would ask, are they do, are they out of their house? Does anybody know? They're out of their house. Okay. They they have a new home. I I missed that in two weeks. <laughs> I I was talking to Ed about a building project, and I know he's not into that yet. So. <laughs> That's good. Where Where is that, if you don't mind me asking? Where? They're in Dryden. Okay, great. We're neighbors. Uh, let me see here. First of all, you'll see that uh, the next event, September the 15th, um, you'll see that um, we're having board games uh, for inside and adults interested in using the shooting range. Um, you can see... Um, the note there about being locked and stored. $3 a person for pizza and bring your own snacks. So stick that up on your fridge for the next event. I have a note here uh, regarding the Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, just some highlights. 47 churches participated this year in the Baby Bottle Drive. Um, so far, grand total, $39,176 came in from that, and it says and counting, so, uh, so some still coming in. So we're praising the Lord. Almost $40,000 from the baby bottles with change in them. So that's... It is over 40000 Thank you, Sheila. So it is and counting. So some people are slow like me and have it sitting on the thing by the door. And... Um, and, and our church contributed to that, uh, at least to this point, $738.51. So that's a pretty big number from change in baby bottles from Thornville Baptist Church. So uh, thank you for your participation in that. I pray that God would uh, bless you for having a part in that. And I know that the ministry very much appreciates it. Uh, I see an Acts and Facts here. Is that new this week? This Acts and Facts, new this week. Um, the gospel starts with creation. Wow. I want to read that right now. <laughs> that's, that's true, isn't it? The, um, 
the liberals are trying to take the creation account out of the Bible and say, oh, no, 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 that was a made-up story, um, and the Big Bang is really how it happened. And so when you start to do that, you, you start to compromise the gospel. So we're going we're gonna to stick with the account that's in Genesis, and uh, we, we'll go that way. All right, um, I think that's it. Our scripture for meditation, then, is found in Matthew's gospel, Read chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. stand together and open our service with prayer. George, can I ask you to lead today?
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. We take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 234, 234 in the brown. Yes, Dale. Go ahead. Yep.
scripture reading today is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died, rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels, with the trump call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Take your brown hymnals once again and turn to number 239, 239.
Jesus is coming again. Amen. Amen, right? We rejoice in that. Now, we may not be around to see it. We may be part of it. Because it says in the scriptures that Christ will bring those who have died in him, with him when he comes again. Or, if you're still alive, um, you'll be able to see him coming in the clouds of glory. Either way, we will ever be with the Lord. And Paul says you need to comfort one another with those words, with that truth. Uh, So, wonderful thing to be thinking about. In our last study, we talked about the joy of living by the Spirit. The new birth, the new nature, forbids a return to the old life of sin. This does not mean that we are now sinless, but it does mean that in heart and mind we strive to live holy lives pleasing to the Lord. That in itself is revolutionary when you think about it, because no unbeliever is motivated with such a great goal. Then too, part of the old nature was and is to try to please God through self-improvement, human effort, trying to earn reconciliation with God by keeping the commands which we can never do. We learn that God's law is unflinchingly inflexible. I mean, if you disobey just one time, you become guilty as a lawbreaker. Just one time. And that sin is enough to condemn you because of God's impeccable holiness he's perfect and nothing can placate him if we have committed one sin and of course we our whole lives are born we're born in sin we live in sin we do sin that's what we are so no one is ever saved because of their goodness or their attempts to be good jesus put it this way there is none good but god that kind of says it all doesn't it Saying that, he was telling us that it would take God to please God. Because no one among men has the capacity of holiness and goodness to earn God's approval. And I don't think God is being mean-spirited in all of this. He's just being God. He cannot deny himself. He cannot not be God any more than you cannot be a sinner. We are what we are by nature. This is why only Jesus, God's son, could live in perfect obedience to God's law, thus being sinless, and then voluntarily die to pay for sins, not that he did, but for the sins of his people, stepping in as our substitute, our redeemer. Well, today we want to look at the subject. I'm going to take two messages on this. The joy of the second coming of Christ. We don't hear much about this in preaching in our day, but I hope to correct some of that. uh, Because it is the great hope and aspiration that we have as believers, that Christ is coming again. And he's going to deal with this sin problem that we still have in our lives. He's going to make us like unto Christ, like unto himself, and fit us for glory. So as we come to our study today, let's ask for God's enablement. Holy Father, send your spirit to teach us firstly of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
may we see him in his glory. Allow our sinful eyes to penetrate beyond ourself and our sinful nature and to see in Christ his beauty and to be able to apprehend and lay hold of him and his wonderful work that he's done for sinners. Help us to experience the joy of Advent. And Lord, where we are still living so much in this world and part of the culture, and our sinful nature pulls us in that direction. Lord, wean us away from the world. Help us to see that this world is temporary. We're just passing through, as the little song says. Our real hope is laid up in glory if we know Christ. If we don't know Christ, it's not laid up in glory. It's laid down in hell. And we need to repent. And I pray that you'll grant us that repentance and faith to come to know you this day in your saving power. Honor and glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk today and next week about the joy of the second coming of Christ. You notice in scripture that there are references in prophecy for the advents of Christ. I think believers are pretty well versed in the Old Testament scriptures and doctrine of the coming of God's Son to be the Savior of his people. And there are many scriptures on this. I'm just going to touch on a few. The very first occurred right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, having succumbed to the lies of the snake, Satan. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent is going to be destroyed by the seed of the woman. What is that seed? Well, it's Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Isaiah spoke 700 years before Christ. 700 years, seven centuries. And here's what he said. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 700 years now. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. That means the word, Emmanuel means God with us. That's fulfilled in Matthew 1. The angel informed Joseph concerning Mary's pregnancy. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what the name Jesus means. It means to be savior. He goes on, Matthew does, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will give birth with a child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. So the prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled 
in Christ. Even the town of his birth was prophesied 400 years before it occurred. You'll find it in the book of Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5, verse 2. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 2, verse 5, where Herod, prompted by the Magi's visit, asked his Bible scholars, where was the Messiah to be born? And they answered by quoting Micah 5, verse 2. You'll find that in Matthew 2, verse 5 and 6. And what did they say? Well, he's going to be born in the little town of David, Bethlehem. So these prophecies not only predicted Jesus' birth, the time and the place thereof, but also his work. We find in Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap as a deer and the mute tongue for joy will speak. Jesus answered to, that was his answer to John the Baptist when John sent his disciples and said, You know, can you tell us about this Jesus that you guys are preaching? You'll find that in Luke 7, verse 22. Again, his death was predicted. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and following. He was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and was esteemed, esteemed, they esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. That very text is quoted by Peter in reference to Jesus. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 and 24. You can read Psalm 22 on your own. It actually records some of Jesus' statements from the cross, written centuries before. Isaiah 52, 13 and following, described the torture that he would endure. In Psalm 68, 18, when you ascend on high, (coughs) you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men. Even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. That's quoted by Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 8 and 9, in reference to Jesus' fulfillment of Acts 1, verse 9 and following, <coughs> which says, After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, 
and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All of this we know as the first advent of our Lord Christ. Well, that's the first advent. Well, the second advent is also foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. We just read the angelic announcement to the onlooking disciples. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1 verse 11. Jude quotes a prophecy made by Enoch. He says, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the, wor- in the ungodly way, of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the book of Jude, verse 14 and 15. And you see here, that judgment is the main theme. Jacob foretold of Judah and his descendants, the coming king. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Genesis 49, verse 10. Balaam prophesied, the oracle of one who hears the words of God who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush his enemy. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Numbers 24, verse 16 and following. Or in 1 Samuel 2, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord ends, sends poverty and wealth. He humbles the exalted. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the heap of ash. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 and following. This king is promised to be the heir of David, Judah's tribe. Solomon knew it wasn't him. Solomon says, Now, Lord, O God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises that you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a man 
to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. 1 Kings 8 verse 25. God himself spoke in Psalm 2. He said, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Oh, the well, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule over them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Psalm 2, the first nine verses. Isaiah speaks of the kingly nature of God's Son. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establish and upholding it with, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Now even this fast read of just eight verses, in that we get a feel for a different kind of coming than Jesus' first advent. What I'm saying is that there is a definite theme in the second coming of judgment. There is the undercurrent of a dominant rule that subjugates all the nations. It is not a day of salvation, it is a day of redemption. It is not Jesus' day of humiliation. It is not a day for him to suffer. It is not a day for him to be sacrificed. But it is his day of vindication and vengeance and triumph over all of his enemies. It's a sobering truth. The prophecies of Jesus' first coming are all well documented by historical events that did occur as predicted. So it is reasonable, it is fitting to believe that these prophecies of his second coming will be also fulfilled in a literal and equally historical setting. God kept his word concerning those first prophecies. He's going to keep his word with regard to those second prophecies. And that, I say, is a sobering truth. 
Because are we ready for the fulfillment of the second prophecies? Well, let me give you some of the characteristics of Jesus' second advent. The second advent. Number one, it will proceed as Christ himself has predicted. I don't know if you know anything about the Mayan calendar, the predictions of the Jehovah's Witnesses, those of uh, the prognosticators like Harold Camping, who was a retired former CEO of Family Radio, had 150 stations that he was over. They all listed dates for the return of Christ. They were all and are all bogus. They proved themselves to be false prophets without the slightest credibility because God defined his prophet, Jesus, the true prophet, in this way. I will raise up for you a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And if anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Okay, so far so good. But he went on to say, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. Well, what was the test? They asked that question. That was a good question for Israel to ask. Well, how, you know, how are we going to know which is what? So God went on to answer. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Answer, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet, I'm still reading scripture, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 through 22. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Got this, these people out prophesying the coming of Christ and it's going to be this way, that way, here, there, wherever. And, and God is saying, if the prophecies don't come true, <laughs> I'm not the one that gave them the prophecy. They have spoken presumptuously. That is to say, they have said, the Lord has said he's coming on such and such a day, but it's just them saying it. I didn't say it. Let me tell you that our country was afraid with the Mayan calendar predictions and in the path with some of those other prognosticators. But I hope you weren't afraid. It's one of the characteristics of prophecy from God is to give enough information to be a credible witness of what's going to occur without removing every element of surprise. 
Now he does this not to calm the fears of the unbelieving, but to calm your fears and my fears and to give us time for preparation. In our text, the believers were distraught. What were they distraught about? They were distraught about their deceased loved ones. And Paul explains that part of their distress was due to ignorance. Ignorance about the nature of Jesus' return. Their loved ones were already with the Lord in spirit, that is in soul. These Jesus would bring with him at his second coming, he says, verse 15. They're going to have preeminence in the resurrection then any of us who are still alive at Jesus' coming will join them in the clouds, verse 17. All well and good. Paul knew that. But some false teachers had infiltrated the church of Thessalonica, and they were teaching, get this now, they were teaching that Christ's second coming had already come, already gone, and they, with their loved ones, were left behind. Think how disconcerting that would be. Christ came and you missed it. Whoa. The promise made to God's people by Jesus himself was this. In my father's house there are many rooms and if it were not so I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Wow. And take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, verse 2 and 3. So, if believers, including the brethren at the church of Thessalonica had known of or taken these words of Jesus seriously, they could not have been upset and frightened when the false teacher said that Jesus had already returned and they missed it. No, they would think, Jesus' promise is to return and take us with him. Not leave us behind. No believer, no believer will ever miss out. The very purpose of Jesus' return is to complete our redemption. Paul writes it this way, all creation awaits this day. He writes, the creation waits in eager expectation. For what? For the sons of God, that's you and me, to be revealed. For their creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know That the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, 
But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, and we, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, verse 19 through 23. Paul says, we're waiting, we're groaning, we're not upset. Creation is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. To decay, We are awaiting freedom from sin and decay. We await the finalization of adoption. We wait the redemption of our bodies. And all this occurs at the second coming of Christ. Now if he comes and you're in the grave, you get a new body as you're resurrected from that grave. If you're alive when he comes... You're going to be caught up into the clouds with those coming out of the graves, and you're going to be changed. You get a new body too. Got to have new bodies to be able to endure the perfection of heaven's glory. Wow. Think about it. Not only that, but Paul says we're going to have a glorious body like unto that of who? The Lord Jesus himself. It's an interesting study to look in the gospel accounts and to see some things about that glorious body, right? Do you remember when the disciples were all huddled in a room, all scared that, boy, they were going to be next to be caught, taken to jail, and then crucified? And Jesus appeared in their midst. Doors locked, windows locked, but a body that could pass through. And it was a physical body, because some of them said, oh, oh, oh that, that, that must be a ghost. He says, oh, no, it's not a ghost. Do you have anything here for me to eat? And they came up with some bread and fish. Ghosts can't eat. But there's the bread. There's the fish. It's in the mouth. It's chewed up. It's swallowed. Now it's not in the mouth. Now it's no more. Ghosts can't do that. But a body can do going to have a body that's like unto Christ. So why then were there true Christians, and it really did happen, that were very agitated over the Mayan calendar scare and the predictions of Harold Camping and a bunch of other things? They would have been at peace to hear and to believe that Jesus taught no one knows the day No one knows the hour of his return. Do you know just that one verse? No? Let me give it to you. It's it's in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, No one knows about that day or hour, only the Father. And in Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You know what that tells me? That tells me that any time you find somebody trying to predict the, the day or the time of Christ's coming, just chalk them off as being bogus right there. Just chalk them off. They don't know what they're talking about. They can use, you know, spiritual sounding words. Well, the Lord's going to come in the clouds and it's going to be on March of uh, 2017, 2018, whatever it is. No, it isn't. You can just chalk it off. They don't know what they're talking about. Because we have a verse in Scripture. We have a couple of verses here that says that no man knows the time 
or the place of Christ's second coming. Now, if the Thessalonians had known about these verses, and I don't fault the Bible, the, the New Testament was being written as they lived it, wasn't all available to them. I don't think they could have looked up uh, Matthew twenty four thirty six. There was no Matthew twenty four thirty six written down yet, or if it was, it was very limited in who could have it. Acts one seven wasn't written down yet. So, I don't fault them for that. But the point being made is that when those verses are written down, they testify to the fact. But even for the Thessalonians, you're not going to know the day. You're not going to know the hour. So be calm. Be peaceful. You have to be at peace when you hear and believe that what Jesus taught. No one knows my day. No one knows the hour of my return. I think we create a lot of distress for ourselves at times by not knowing, worse, I put it this way, not believing God's word on these matters. People come up with these theories. All your theories have to be governed by the word of God. And if they don't match up, you better scrap your theory. You better scrap your theory. Another characteristic of Jesus' second coming is a proliferation of evil deeds accompanied by unbelief. Jesus said it this way, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage up to the day. Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left, two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know. On what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming. He would have kept watch. And would not have left his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 44. Boy, just this one text. There's a a lot of observations we need to make here. As it was in the days of Noah. With that simple historical reflection, we learn that Jesus believed in the flood of Noah's day. And he links the terrible judgment of that day to his own return. As it was in the days of Noah, prompts the question, in my mind at least, well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Do we have 
any record of life way back then. Well, Jesus goes on and he gives us some detail in the Matthew 24 text. In the days, says Jesus, before the flood, people were eating, they were drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. What's he saying? He says, well, they were living life with its normal activities continuing on. Meals, feasting, marriage, starting families. The industry which goes along with providing for your family. In other words, life was going on as usual. Nothing extraordinary. Well, why the reference to the day Noah entered the ark? The Bible indicates that Noah was unique among his contemporaries in this. It says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Genesis 6, verse 9. And the previous verse says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, verse 8. That's rather unique. And in his walk with God, Noah complied with God's order for him to build an ark which took him 120 years to complete. But Noah was doing something else for God in all those years. And Peter tells us about it. God, I'm reading Peter now, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. But he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Oh, and seven others. Second Peter 2, verse 5. The seven others were his family. Noah, as a truly righteous man living in a godless world, what was he doing? Well, he accompanied his shipbuilding days as a preacher of righteousness, calling people to repentance, warning them of the impending judgment. And he did so right up to the day that he entered the ark. The people had a visible witness of what was coming. So how is it, as Jesus said, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away? Well, brethren, they knew nothing because they believed nothing that Noah preached to them. That's what happened. To his audience, Noah was some doddering old fool building a boat in the middle of a dry plain He talked about something called rain. But up until that time, we read in Scripture, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth, watered the whole surface of the ground. Genesis 2, verse 5 and 6. And so they're thinking, what's what's he talking about? What's this this rain stuff he's talking about? Look at that structure he's building what is that the middle of the it's huge it's over 400 it it's like a football field longer than anything we could see around here you must be off his rocker (laughs) that's what's going on well yeah the surface was watered by springs that came up from the ground 
but contrast that with the events of the flood in which we read on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Genesis 7, verse 11 and 12. Well, they soon found out what rain was, right? But they didn't see it coming. They didn't see it coming, nor will people see or recognize the events of Jesus' coming judgment, though we preachers are doing our best to inform them. Why didn't you tell me? Again, Jesus speaks of his coming as a thief in the night. What does he mean by that? Well, unannounced, unexpected, a tremendous element of surprise. Now again, again, Not surprised because nothing has been said about the coming of Christ, but surprised because people are engulfed in their own day-to-day lives, making a living, caring little about future events, especially religious future events. But, and here's the worst characteristic, parallel of the days of Noah, a tremendous toleration for evil. Toleration. What about Noah's day? Well, the Lord God, I'm reading scripture. The Lord God saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Could you ever find a bunch of words built built up like that? That is a tremendous verse. This is very scary. What do you mean? Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6 verse 5. This is the primary reason for the flood. We read in the Bible that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Genesis 6 verse 11 through 13. The Hebrew word for corrupt means to spoil or to go to rot. To go to rot. Ooh boy, that's that's figurative, isn't it? Can you visualize that? Something going to rot. Think of our world. Think of our country. Think of our culture. Forget Noah now for a minute. Think of our world, our culture, our country. Is it not very much like Hosea's criticism? Here's Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. 
They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are dying. What's that? That's your natural resources. They're being depleted. Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3. Yale University. Yale University was founded in 1701. It was founded by the clergy of Connecticut to be a school of theology, to train ministers of the gospel in what they thought of as Puritan orthodoxy. Well, what did Puritan orthodoxy mean? It means they were Calvinistic, like us. Yale was formed for that in 1701 prior to our Declaration of Independence. A man by the name of Nathan Hardin, an editor for a college paper, a 2009 graduate of Yale University, wrote an article in Imprimis. Imprimis is the magazine of Hillsdale College right here in Hillsdale, Michigan, Christian school. It's, an, it's entitled Man, Sex, God, and Yale. He writes in 1951, William F. Buckley, a graduate of Yale, the year published the, his first book, God and Man at Yale, and in the preface he described two ideas that he had brought with him to Yale and that governed his view of the world. I had always been taught and experienced and fortified the teaching that an act of faith in God and a rigid adherence to Christian principles are the most powerful influence towards a, the good life. I also believed, with only scanty knowledge of economics, that free enterprise and limited government had served the country well, would probably continue to do so into the future. The body of the book provided evidence that the academic agenda at Yale was openly antagonistic to these two ideals, that Buckley had encountered a teaching and a culture that were hostile to religious faith and that promoted collectivism over free market individualism, in other words, communism, collectivism. We're all, you know, one group. Rather than functioning as an open forum for ideas, his book argued Yale was waging war upon the faith and the principles of its alumni and its parents. I graduated from Yale in 2009, and I'm reading this author, 59 years after Buckley. I had a chance to meet with him a couple of years before he died, at a small gathering at his home at his home little did i know at the time that i would write a book of my own that would serve in some ways as a continuation of his famous critique of yale my book which i entitled sex and god at yale shows that yale's liberals are still actively working to refashion american politics and culture 
but the devil is in the details. And my, how times have changed. There is clearly a radical sexual agenda at work at Yale today. Professors and administrators who came of age during the sexual revolution are busily indoctrinating students into a culture of promiscuity. In fact, Yale pioneered the hosting of a campus sex week, a festival of sleaze and porn and debauchery dressed up as sex education. I encountered this tawdry tradition as an undergraduate, and my book documents the events of that week, including the screening in classrooms of hardcore pornography and the giving permission to a sex toy manufacturer and porn production companies to market their products directly to the students. And again, he writes, these things happen with the full knowledge and approval of Yale's senior administrators. Yale as an institution no longer understands the substantive meaning of academic freedom, which requires the ability to distinguish art from pornography, not to mention right from wrong. It is a sign of its enslavement to the ideology of moral relativism. In other words, whatever you want to do, you just do it. Which denies any objective truth except, of course, the truth that there is no It's hard to overlook the paradox, he writes. By enrolling Hashemi in the name of diversity, Yale abandoned the principles of human rights, the very principle that allows diverse individuals, including those of different faiths, to coexist peacefully. To the extent that Yale and schools like it succeed in producing leaders who subscribe to the ideology of a moral relativism and who thus see no moral distinction between America and its enemies, we will likely be disabused. That means to be persuaded that our belief is mistaken of this false sense of security all too soon. Well, that's not only Yale. That's Harvard. That's Princeton. Do you know all of these schools, these Ivy League schools, they were all started by Christians. They were all started as theological institutions. And all of them were started by theological institutions of the Calvinistic persuasion. Shame on them. Shame on us as a nation. That we would have schools that are actually promoting hedonism. Oh, and the third characteristic is this. There's no repentance. 
No repentance. No repentance, no contrition, no humility before God, no sorrow for sin, no acknowledgement that God is holy and that only holy people may enter his presence in peace. Or in Hosea's words, let me give it to you, no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. That's what Hosea said. Oh, but there are plenty of other things going on, cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, lots of bloodshed. This is total anarchy, brethren. That's what our schools produce. The good people, the godly people who are to be salt and light have lost their influence and evil has taken over. Maybe you all will remember the National Office of the Boy Scouts firstly advocated and then approved homosexuals to be allowed to become the scout leaders. Oh, they said, yeah, the local chapters could opt out of the policy if they wanted to but they capitulated to the liberal agenda. That's what they said initially. Just seven months after that, the scouts affirmed no ban on homosexuals in leadership positions. No repentance. They just pushed the godless agenda. Remember Lot's predicament? God sent two angelic messengers to rescue Lot from the impending judgment coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot believed them, and he took steps to convince his sons-in-laws to escape with him. So Lot went, I'm reading scripture, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters, and he said, hurry, uh, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. Still reading. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. (laughs) Boy, dad, that's a good one. Genesis 19, verse 14. Judgment, a joke? How warped can you get? What happened is that Lot had lost Lot had lost his credibility. You see, it's hard to be taken serious when you're living in the very culture marked with corruption and you're part of it. His sons-in-law considered his preaching to be a joke. I wonder, is your testimony, is my testimony a joke? the watching world. Lot told it true. He gave an accurate warning to his future sons-in-law, but they made light of it so they could continue in their sin. And no repentance is the death knell of all who perish. Revelation 9 describes plagues that will be apparent at the coming of Christ. One-third of humanity dies. One-third of humanity when Christ comes. Now one would think that such carnage would cause the most wicked of sinners to change his or her ways. But here's what we read. I'm reading scripture. 
But the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Revelation 9, verse 20 and 21. Wow. What's that? That's Noah's day revisited. That's what that is. Noah's day revisited. A world ripe for judgment at the second coming of Christ, the Lord of glory. How are you going to fare on that day? Paul says, today's the day of salvation. Today is your call to repent of your sin and to come to Christ in faith, trusting him to change your life and forgive you of your sin. Today's the day. Because if judgment comes tomorrow and you're not ready, you've had it. There will be no second chance. There will be no looking the other way. The today will be Noah walking in the door of the ark and the Lord shutting the door behind him and all of creation, all of the world locked out from God's grace and salvation. Ooh, gives me chills to think about it. It is so sobering. And people are going, tripping merrily through life, living their life of sin, caring little about how or what they do, not knowing doomsday is standing above them. Lord, help us to be realistic about doomsday. Not to be scared to death, but to be ready. To be ready for your coming. Make us sober. Make us ready. Let's not be like Lot's sons-in-laws who thought he was joking. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one, Lot. (laughs) Tell us another one. No, let us be sober because we have in the scriptures multiple examples of God having it up to the eyeballs with the sin of men and coming through with his judgment. And we have the great flood that took place. But also the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of Jericho. The judgment of the pagan nations that occupied Canaan. The judgment, the judgment, the judgment. It's all through the scriptures. It's not a little theme. It's a big theme. And Lord, make us ready. How are we going to be ready? In Christ, we're going to be ready. To know the judge. Oh, yeah. 
to know the judge and to be at peace with the judge. That's how we're going to make it through. To be forgiven by the judge. To be spared, to be given a pardon. Lord, help us to see how much we do need Jesus. We pray for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 237. 237 in the Brown Hymnal. We will take a, uh, a break after we sing this song and then regather when you hear the music and we will gather around the Lord's table to remember him. 237 in the Brown Hymnal. Let's stand as we sing. Let's go.
a 10 minute break, regather when you hear the music. Thank you.